Welcome to The Natural Selection, where this week's theme is autumn. Welcome back, listeners, to what is technically a brand new season. Uh, That's exciting, isn't it? Uh, So we are the natural selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order. We are Naomi. Hello. We are Nick. Hello. And we are also Nick. Hello. Nick, why don't you tell them who the natural selection are? Well, those of you tuning in for the first time this week, we're the natural selection. We're three taxonomists who love bringing our passion for nature into the wild. Every week we gather and wax lyrical about the natural world. In the first section of our podcast, we talk about nature news and an interesting piece of research for the past week. In the second section, we talk about a different theme and how that theme relates to flora and fauna around the world. This week's theme is autumn. That's exciting. It actually has started to feel like autumn as well, because, yeah, it sort of felt like it was coming a bit late. I was a bit worried it might not turn up at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) me too. Great launcher point. Nick was like, I wasn't worried. Summer forever. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, it's getting nice and, and cool and crisp now these days. I cycled to work this morning through mist and fog. Oh, wow. In Berlin. Yeah, the canal was particularly lovely. Super cool. Yeah, it felt very autumnal. Was it like the fun sort of mystical fog or was it like the scary, like, murdery fog? It was that sort of fog that I don't see very often because I'm usually a night owl. So when I get up very, very early, I'm like, oh, this can be nice too, but also I'm tired. <laughs> that uh, that Jack the Ripper fog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to say earlier, Nick, when you said this week's theme is autumn, or sorry, you said this week's theme is autumn, uh, (laughs) I wanted to say this week's theme is awesome. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) Um, I would go as far to say, guys, actually, that autumn might be my favourite season. Whoa. I know. I'm not going to lie. I look good in a jumper. Hmm. Mm. It's a good, there's so much you can do with a jumper. That's what yeah. for my American listeners. I feel like in the <laughs> summer that I'm I'm wearing someone else's clothes because it's too hot to wear my clothes. But in <laughs> autumn, I'm like, oh, these are my clothes again. <laughs> As Naomi pointed out already, I like it. The hotter, the better. So I can't agree with autumn. Though I will say that many of the things that come with autumn are really delightful. The drinks, the clothes, oh. the social gatherings, the food. Yeah, it's good. It's a good season. All right then, listeners, join us after this short break. We'll be back with some nature news. Welcome back, listeners. We're here to talk about news that we've all found relating to the natural world this week. Uh, I thought I'd start us off with, again, regular listeners will understand. There's a lot of bad news going around. Uh, I've got some more bad news, uh, which, yeah, doesn't make you feel great about being a human. So a report came out this week. Uh, suggesting that um, the adder, which is Britain's only venomous snake, faces extinction for a rather unusual reason. And the reason is that the uncontrolled release of game birds. So at the start of the shooting season, 
um, met as many as about 47 million non-native pheasants and about 10 million partridges could be released into the countryside by estates and shoots across Britain. And part of the problem with this is that not all of them get shot, which is a weird problem for me to say as someone who likes animals. But the problem is, is that they um, they escape into the countryside. They disperse widely and sometimes into sort of conservation areas. And in fact, uh, the figures suggest that hundreds of thousands of them are killed on the roads every year. But in sensitive wildlife sites, they can have a huge impact on local populations. And one of the impacts they have is they kill reptiles on site. So adders uh, are actually unable to bite through the pheasant's feathers. And pheasants will peck adults to death or just swallow young snakes whole. Holy so, God. yeah, this human human created activity, this leisure activity could lead to the extinction of uh, natural wildlife to the point where there's some conservation teams are looking at suing the government for allowing this to take place uh, on behalf of sort of the environment. Like you said, Nick, really not, again, not some great news, but it seems like a pretty straightforward fix, at least as far as like, there's so many conservation issues that are such such complex issues. Um, but it seems like. Well, it was one of those things, I, again, I don't know a lot about birds, but pheasants are so prevalent that I sort of assumed that they were at least relatively native or, 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 or invasive. But I didn't realize that we were still releasing these birds into the wild with the purpose of shooting them. But yeah, they, they were brought over from Asia. Uh, they originally found in places like Georgia and then brought over through Europe for hunting. And rather more frustratingly, in the UK government, so they released an edict saying that you could only meet in groups of six outside to stop the spread of COVID. But one of the exemptions was actually hunting parties. But yeah, Nick, I heard you got some rather more scientific news for us. Well, uh, it could be taken in a sort of negative way, but I think it's pretty neutral as far as it goes. Uh, this was a study by some researchers in the US who were looking at uh, UV pigmentation in flowers. So as you may know, Flowers can often have pigments in them that are sensitive to UV light, so they'll reflect a different pattern in visible light than they do to UV. And this makes them really attractive to certain insects that see with UV, that can see in UV wavelengths. And these researchers were looking at botanical specimens and the proportion of and patterning of UV pigmentation in these flowers over the last 70 years, and looking at the same species in the wild now and trying to see if there was any sort of difference in the UV uh, pigmentation of these flowers. And what they found was that there's a huge difference. Over the last 70 years or so, every year there's been a 2% change, on average, uh, in UV pigmentation in these flowers that have that have the UV pigmentation. But it's correlated with different things depending on the anatomy of the flower. And this is where it gets really interesting from a conservation standpoint. So pigmentation increased in flowers that uh, have their pollen exposed to ambient UV light in places where ozone levels decreased. So as the ozone layer decreases, more UV light gets through the atmosphere, which means that these plants that have their pollen exposed to the UV light get more UV light hitting them. And as a way to protect the pollen from the damage that UV light does, they create more of this pigment, so it creates a sort of shield between the pollen and the UV radiation, so that the pollen doesn't get damaged so that they can reproduce. On the other hand, 
in places where temperature rose and plants that have pollen shielded by petals, the UV pigmentation decreased. Because as the UV pigmentation decreases, it absorbs less energy from the UV radiation. So it keeps cool in this way. By so it's sort of like if you wear something white on a hot sunny day, it's cooler than wearing something black uh, because it absorbs less and reflects more. So in this uh, way, I think you'll find that black looks cooler. <laughs> Thank you, fashion consultant. <laughs> no, you just did say you're wearing your the you, this is your, this is your season. So really, we should. You're right. I think this is really interesting. It sort of shows the like correlation and damaging effects that both um, increasing temperatures and decreasing ozone can have on these plants. Because when these plants' coloration change, the contrast between the pigmented and non-pigmented sections of the flower either decrease in area or in, in contrast. So insects are maybe less attracted to these plants. That's sort of this behavioral section is what they're going to work on next. But right now they're finding that the pigmentation has increased and decreased in these different ways. So it's definitely affecting how plants are pigmenting their petals and how insects are attracted to those petals, but sort of a complex web of things going on. It's pretty cool, though, to see using botanical specimens, this change. Yeah, I suppose I never really considered plants being affected by UV. Like, obviously, they are cause they're living in things with cells, and, and that would be affected by UV radiation. But yeah, it's, I never really occurred to me that that would have an, an impact. So it's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't cool know research. this either. Um I had a succulent plant in Arizona where it very the UV radiation can be very high in the summer, and I left it outside one day, and it got totally sunburned. Um, it the the UV radiation totally damaged a whole part of the plant and never recovered from that in that part. Yeah, you still think it's yeah. In my head, it's like a leaf's entire job is to be in the sun. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like. Um, like a bowl of water is supposed to hold, a bowl is supposed to hold liquid, but then if you use a fire hose to fill it, it like isn't going to work, you know, it's not going to work, it's too strong. That is true. It's a, it's a good simile. Hmm, thank you. Naomi, has your news got any equally good similes? Hmm, I don't think so. I will try to have a simile if I can think of one. But my news is kind of off theme because it's about winter. So my news is all about phytoplankton. And how this study found that phytoplankton actually seem to be able to photosynthesize even in midwinter. So this was quite a cool experiment. What they did was, and I'm going to read the sentence fully because it was a cool sentence, but they used robotic ice avoiding profiling floats to measure ocean optics and phytoplankton characteristics. And I just really, <laughs> I really enjoyed robotic ice avoiding profiling floats. I don't, I, I mean, I know none of us are the coolest. <laughs> but, but you're, it's a really cool sentence coming up, guys. I just like it. I'm into it. Um, but basically, these um, floats, these robot floats, found that there was net phytoplankton growth, even under 100% ice cover, as early as February. Um, so... And it resulted from at least some photosynthesis. So it's pretty cool. So these plankton that live in Arctic marine environments in the Arctic Sea are able to photosynthesize even in extreme low light conditions. Because as you guys are aware, Arctic 
Arctic winters is is basically darkness almost all the time, and and then this can contribute to help kind of seed the spring uh, phytoplankton blooms. Then, wow, that is I didn't I hadn't considered. You're exactly right. It is like six months of darkness. How are they? What are they photosynthesizing? Yeah, they so. I'm not sure how they survive when it's when it's like extreme dark winter, but yeah, they seem to be able to even manage a little bit of photosynthesis just from this like teeny tiny bit of light that they get. Wow. Cool. Those, yeah, yeah. I think that they they mention also I think heterotrophy, so I think maybe there's other stuff going on as in almost completely darkness. They seem to be able to photosynthesize. Um. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the news. But please join us after this short break, where we'll be talking about this week's theme, autumn. Welcome back, listeners. So we are here to talk about this week's theme. uh, And as you may well know, that this show has its own literary correspondent. And he wanted to open up this week with a poet. I did. Uh, when I was doing my research for Autumn, I kept running across the ways that humans relate to Autumn, which was not helpful because I'm, I'm, you know, we talk about animals here. And as we know, humans are hardly animals. Uh, no, and more seriously, something that kept, up, kept coming up a lot was Autumn's relationship with melancholia, uh, which is something that I definitely feel and associate with in like, as the days get shorter and the days get colder and everything gets more uncomfortable to be outside. It's it's nice to sort of relish a feeling of like, ah, summer's gone by. Um, but uh, I wanted to find a little something that would capture sort of the feeling of autumn, that feeling of like summer's past, and also uh, talk about some animals in the, and things that happened in autumn. And I landed on the W.B. Yeats poem, The Wild Swans at Cool which I thought was particularly appropriate because it's uh, cool is in Galway, where one of our number is from. Uh, so I, it's a little fun not to Ireland as well, though. It's there. So uh, bear with me. I'll just read this poem for you guys, and then we can talk about the season. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw, before I had well finished, all suddenly mount and scatter, wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with the lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams, or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion, or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find they have flown away? I like that one. It's a bit, um, you know, Yeats is early 1900s and it's oh, a little yeah. dated style, but. Now I was looking up 
words as well, which is not usually my strong point, as you two very well know. Um, although I know several. So I was researching, where does the word autumn come from? And initially, my search was quite dull. So the word autumn, they're not really sure where it comes from. It's a very old word, meaning the season. Uh, it probably comes from Latin, which meant autumn, obviously. Um, but they think it may be a very, very old word that originally meant something like cold or dry or cold and dry or maybe relating to the passing of a year. But what's interesting is that autumn is a relatively recent common addition to the language. It's only for the last few hundred years that autumn has uh, sort of taken over, uh, which you might notice because one of us doesn't say autumn. That's true. It's been a struggle this whole episode. Because you say... Fall. And the reason was, is when people first emigrated to America, autumn wasn't the most popular word. Oh. Either was full, oh. but there was a third word that was used, um, which is a very archaic term, but some people might relate it to it, and is also related to the German word for um, autumn. Do you know the German word, Nick? Herbst. Do you know what uh, that comes from? If you change the B to a B, it might help you. Ah, the harvest. Yes. Cool. So in England, it was called the harvest or harvest. And that was the time of year. But as people moved away from the countryside and into cities, harvest became less useful. So other names came in, including the old one, autumn, which overtook it in England. And as well, fall was being used at the time people emigrated to America. And that became the more popular one in America. Now, interestingly, Naomi, do you know the Irish word for autumn? Sound? Yeah, I think. I can't spell Irish. Um, oh, yeah, you're is there right, an MH you? in there? Yeah, there is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's why I got you to say it, because I knew I'd get it wrong. Um, <laughs> do you know etymologically what that means? Um, I don't, actually. That means harvest. Ah. Ding. So, in many languages... Um, the word autumn actually just means harvest. Uh, and our word autumn is only an addition since we all moved to the city. Huh. I did not know that. That's really cool. The herbst, herbst, harvest connection, that's really makes it very clear. But annoyingly in German, uh, because languages evolve, uh, they now have a different word for harvest. <laughs> so it's not herbst. Great. Nick, uh, I'm really glad that this connection worked so perfectly because something that I wanted to talk about was the name of the moon, the names of the moons, uh, which I, I think most of us have heard of the harvest moon, which I always thought just happened, like, you know, just happened to happen near autumn without any etymological connection. But uh, there's a ton of different names for the, every moon, which I've discovered during the research for this episode. <laughs> And I wanted to share with you guys some of the fun names from the old Farmer's Almanac, uh, which is the, it's not an, it's not an old Farmer's Almanac. It's called the old, the old Farmer's Almanac. And I'm not sure if it means that the Farmer's Almanac is old or that the farmer is old. I have yet to figure <laughs> it out. Um, maybe both. Maybe both. <laughs> um, but they have, uh, the main names of each of the three moons of what I'm considering autumn for this section here, September, October, and November. Uh, and those three main names are the Harvest Moon in September, the Full Hunter's Moon in October, 
and the full beaver moon in November. And so it's so the ten- full beaver moon. The full beaver. Yes, the full. This is American, so the full <laughs> beaver moon. Yes. <laughs> so in September we have the harvest moon, and it's the time for harvesting corn. So it's also called the full corn moon, which to me sounds like something out of an old folk song for sure. I think um, so I've heard that said in a song. Yeah, the full corn moon for sure. I can't think of what it's from, but maybe listeners can can track that Is down. Is it Pocahontas? Under the light of the full corn moon. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Brilliant. I mean, isn't it something cool and edgy by Bob Dylan? Oh, you're right. Right. Yeah. yeah definitely. Definitely. No, it's, uh, it's Disney. I'm appropriating <laughs> that there. Uh, but uh, some other names include the autumn moon. Okay, that makes sense. That's what we're talking about. The child moon, fallen leaves moon, leaves turning moon, mating moon, the moon of brown leaves. Moon when the rice is laid up to dry, the rutting moon. And I'm, can I stop you there? Yeah. The moon when the rice is laid up to dry needs a shorter, pithy, and just the rice moon. Yeah, dry rice moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like no one's going to be like, wait, is this the dry rice moon where we do this type of drying or this? <laughs> just the dry rice moon is fine. Yeah, no, it's the rice moon when the rice is laid up to dry, and the yellow leaf moon is the last one. Now, October doesn't have quite as many, but I think these are um, a bit more evocative. So October, as you'll recall, the primary one there is the full hunter's moon. And it's the time when game is fattened up for winter and the time for hunting and laying in a store of provisions for the long months ahead. It's the preparation month. And we also get the drying rice moon. Figure that one out. Uh, the falling leaves moon, which we've heard before, but then... We have the freezing moon, the ice moon, and the migrating moon. And then finally, in November, full beaver moon. Uh, it's the time when beavers finish preparations <laughs> for winter and retreat into their lodges. Uh, also known as the deer rutting moon, the digging or scratching moon, freezing moon, which we also had in November, the frost moon, and finally, white fish moon. Oh, that one might be my favorite. Whitefish moon. I also like Ice Moon. I love I ice. liked Ice Moon. Yeah. What was the one before it? Uh, freezing Moon. Freezing Moon is also pretty cool. <laughs> and I, by the time we get into November, December, accurate. But uh, Naomi, you wanted to talk about what makes autumn fall. Yeah, so I think I went for the classic thing you think about when you think about autumn. I want to talk about leaves and leaves changing color and why trees lose their leaves. And um, so the reason trees lose their leaves is because it's quite expensive for them to have leaves in winter when they're going to get damaged and and they're not going to be very useful. So they want to conserve energy. They basically want to ensure their long longevity by reducing their resources and their expenditure on having leaves, particularly so this type of deciduous trees, um, because the water in their leaves would freeze. But the reason that leaves turn orange and red before they fall is because they're usually green because of chlorophyll. But chlorophyll is very valuable and expensive to make. It, you know, it's an important resource for them to have. So basically, they suck in back all the chlorophyll from their leaves and store it in their root. And what's left behind is the carotenoids. So that's basically all these other pigments that give leaves this yellow and red and orange colors. 
that's why autumn leaves are, are those colors. But you might also be thinking not all trees lose their leaves, and that's true. Uh, there are evergreen trees. Um, so those leaves, uh, those trees have sort of different adaptations. They're able to keep their leaves during winter. They do lose leaves, but not in the same way. They don't have kind of that mass losing of leaves. But actually something interesting that I learned about evergreen trees was that actually so they're very good at taking nutrients from the soil in winter when they're when there's less nutrients available but another thing that they do that benefits themselves are their leaves are very high in, or needles are very high in nitrogen so when they drop into the soil that soil is actually better for evergreen than deciduous trees so they basically improve their own chance of growing in that area because they like adjust the soil composition Cool. Which is cool. I didn't realize. So what you're saying, Naomi, with the deciduous, with the leaves that change color, is mm. that underneath the green chlorophyll pigment is already that sort of whatever color that it will be when the pigment gets sucked out. Yeah, wow. pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Don't they also send things to their leaves like toxins? I know, Nick, that that's true for things like mangroves that live in water that they're sort of like forced to filter like salt water that they have to i don't know if it's true in like a aspen forest or something but yeah do you mean specifically like in in autumn do they send the toxins to their leaves or just like all the time they have toxins in their leaves i feel like i was told at a very young age that yeah they recover the chlorophyll from their leaves but they also send things that they need to dump into the leaves so when they fall off it takes the toxins with them that sounds right to me. Yeah, that that might be true. When I was looking it up, I didn't find anything that they like pushed in this stuff, but it could be very well be true. I, I imagine as well that depending on the tree or the plant, that they would already have some toxins or things like that in, in their leaves, because to you know stop things eating them. Mm. I mean, interesting. I'm not actually 100 sure on that. Maybe that could be possible. When I was looking it up, it didn't particularly. It didn't say that they add it, but they could they could very well add more more things like that. But just when I was reading it, it just sort of said that when the chlorophyll leaves, it leaves kind of all those other pigments behind. I was fascinated they're carotenoids, which obviously get their name from carrots. So it's the same pigment which make carrots orange. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's actually quite a few of these um, carotenoids. Um, so anthocyanin is one and xanthophyll is another. Not confident with that because I'm not a botanist. <laughs> I feel like we should just have a recording yeah, so of all of us yeah. saying that, and we should play <laughs> yeah. it after every time we talk about plus. I know I wanted to branch out, to, right? And you know, talk about hey, talk about plants. Hey. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you stepped out on a new leaf there, Naomi. It's nice to have a little diversity in the garden of what we're, you know, the topics we're thinking of. <laughs> Thank you. I, I did my best. <laughs> Plants. <laughs> Make you. It's so good. Great pun. I was trying to get to the root of the topic, you know. Oh, there she goes. Trees. I'm helping. <laughs> so, Naomi, I have terrible yes. news. Oh, no. Terrible, frightening news. Do you know what happens in autumn, Naomi? Leaves fall off trees? Well, this would be a terrible time for you to look up. Because this (laughs) 
<laughs> is when the geese migrate. Dun, dun, dun. So in the Arctic Circle, as you mentioned, it's getting darker and colder. And while you might think that this might suit the geese's dark, cold hearts, in fact, they prefer warmer climates. The climate that some of them, like Naomi, happen to be the one you're living in. Oh no. <laughs> um, but it does mean, if you look up, you can often see V's at this time of year. Those classic geese V's, uh, where you see them flying through the sky. Sort of like chevrons. Is that the right word? Yeah, chevrons. There's a lot of them. So just the pink-footed geese, uh, 400,000 of them will arrive in the UK in the coming months. And they're not the only ones. Canada geese will also come here. Barnacle geese and grey lag geese will all arrive in vast numbers as Britain slowly fills up with Naomi's mortal enemy, geese. Including Canada geese, which are the largest type of geese. Well, that's me not going to the parks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. And swans also migrate around now too as well, right? I didn't look them up because uh, uh, I knew that wouldn't in- elicit fear in your <laughs> eyes. So, uh... <laughs> oh, okay, go. Cool. Swans Sorry. are just adorable <laughs> geese, or posh geese, really, aren't they? Yeah. That's true. They're the queen's yeah. geese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Naomi, if you're interested, some other birds are starting to arrive. It is migratory season, and one of my favourite birds is starting to arrive because I used to live in Brighton, and used to be able to watch them in autumn at sunset. It's the starlings. So what do you guys know about starlings? They're the ones that are black with a little iridescence. Yeah. Um, they have murmurations. Yeah. That's so, where they walk around and go, oh, are these newcomers, what are they talking about? <laughs> oh, sorry, that's muttering. Um <laughs> Murmur. Murmur is also whispering, and that's where they think they get the word memorations, because it might be the noise of the beating wings as you walk under them. Sounds like a sort of gentle murmur. And you can find them throughout Europe. So where I used to watch them was over the uh, pier in Brighton. There'd be these huge memorations. They used to be a lot bigger. Uh, it's estimated that 80% of the starling population of the UK has uh, has disappeared, meaning that they're now in the critical list of the UK birds most at risk. But you can still see these beautiful formations. You can also find them in places like Rome, where they'll sort of flock over the train station and other famous monuments if you want sort of a more picturesque, grand setting. But I like Brighton because they're over the sea. It's quite beautiful. And it's sort of a strange thing to watch. If you, They are mesmerising as you watch them. It's sort of these shifting patterns. And scientists were sort of at a loss as what they were for. Like, why would they bother making these huge clouds of birds? And on top of that, how do they do it? Like... It obviously looks very ordered and methodical and slow. So what are the rules that govern this sort of crowd behavior? So the answer to why they do it is still pretty unknown. Uh, we can't really ask them, but it appears there's some level of communication involved. They might be communicating to the nearest foraging sites. They also do it over where they're going to roost for the night. So it, there is sort of a locational aspect to it. And they think it might have warming behaviours, sort of warming up as a crowd and moving about and, uh, yeah, creating lots of energy and staying tight together might help warm them up, which, as you know, in autumn, it's getting a bit colder, so it might become quite useful. But before the why, they were able to establish the how. 
because how could such large groups of animals work together? That sounds really, really difficult. But what they found is they don't necessarily need to talk to each other. There are certain rules that they follow, which is if a bird near them gets too close, they move further away. If one gets too far away, they move closer. What they found is they actually only need to match their speed and direction with their nearest six or seven neighbours. So they don't have to communicate with the whole flock, just the nearest seven. Um, now, Nick, I have a question for you as our literary correspondent. Uh-oh. What is the massive problem with this following line? Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer. Well, first of all, starlings can't talk. Well, actually, you're wrong. <gasps> starlings are mimics. Ah! They mimic sound. They've been known to mimic car alarms and things like that. Mozart had a pet starling that he would play little ditties to. That's really sweet. I didn't know that. Uh, but this line is hugely problematic. Do you know why? Tell me. Do you know who wrote it? I have to say no. Do you know Naomi? I feel like you might know this. I don't actually, no. What if I told you that that is from Henry the Fourth, Part One, by William Shakespeare? I accept you, that. Do you know now why this mention of starlings caused so many problems? There weren't starlings during the time of Henry the Fourth, where he was. Well, there were where he was, but there weren't where you're from. And there are now. So there was a society that in America wanted ah, to release yes. all of the birds mentioned by Shakespeare into the United States to make the New World seem more familiar to the people emigrating there. So mm. they released starlings and things like that. Now, the problem with this is that starlings did too well. So while their numbers have dropped by 80% in the UK, there are now over 200 million in America. And they cause huge problems. Part of the reason is they're actually very stocky animals. Um, they're very, very muscular for their size. And what they do is they, 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 um, nest in holes and they're actually able just to outmuscle all of the native hole dwelling species like bluebirds. They'll just push them out the nest. Um, they're much more dense than the, than the native bluebirds. So what problems can this cause? Well, the largest, it's actually resulted in deaths. So the one of the biggest aviation disasters in United States history was when a plane took off from Boston's Logan Airport and but a, a flock of starlings flew into the engines, uh, which killed 62 people on board. Uh, starlings also cost the U.S. agriculture an estimated one billion dollars a year from damage to crops, particularly fruit trees. And they can even affect dairy prices because they steal the grain being fed to cows. Now, they quite famously annoy gardeners because they are very fast feeders and they're sort of flock feeders. So when you put out your bird feeder, if the starlings come, it's gone in five minutes and nothing else comes. Mm. So dairy farmers face uh, face a similar problem. Um, Nick, are starlings migratory? Yes, they're migrating to us right now. That's why they're sort of appearing in these memorations. But many birds, as we know, migrate during the spring and autumn season change. But they don't all migrate at the same time. Uh, that's something that I wanted to talk about with you guys today is this sort of what's called phenological shift or the shift in things that happen with the seasons. And you may have heard of uh, like the advancing spring, as it's sort of known in, in science communication and popular science. 
or just sort of what is like the sort of uh, early shifting of spring sort of markers of dates that happen in the ecological world that mark the starting of spring, like bud bursting and hatchings and caterpillar arrival and this sort of thing like um that are like days they're basically like days that happen each year and can be marked like here's the day that the first buds on this tree came out uh and what has been seen over the last 30 to 80 years is a gradual shift the creeping spring it's called um of an earlier and earlier spring so over the last 30 years it's it's spring is sort of coming on average about a week earlier than uh it used to which is likely due to climate change and uh, a lot of other sort of factors playing together. But you'd think that the same sort of thing would be pretty obvious in autumn. If the temperatures are getting warmer, then you'd think, oh, then summer is just expanding. And there's not a lot of research into autumn phenological changes because it's a lot harder to judge when the start of autumn actually is. Things like bud bursts happen really in a concentrated period of time, all at once, as soon as the weather is good. But something like leaf senescence, like Naomi was talking about earlier, happens over a really long period of time, over months, uh, and it doesn't happen at the same time in the, even the same trees. Uh, so it can sort of be a lot harder to pick, like, here's the day that leaf changing started to happen, or here's the day that the fall migration started, or because these things sort of happen like a couple birds will leave and some will go. So this these autumn phenological shifts are much harder to keep track of. But things that they might include are fruit ripening happens in the in the autumn. These autumnal migrations we've been talking about was something called insect diapause, which is a bit like uh, hibernation in the pupal phase. So when you have something in a cocoon and the weather isn't quite right for it to come out, will stay in the cocoon until the next nice season, which can sometimes be the whole autumn and winter. Um, and then finally, uh, leaf senescence. So some research looking at this, um, this has shown that basically different birds react in different ways. Some are migrating earlier, some are migrating later, and there's definitely changes going on in the bird community. But uh, it's unclear what direction. There's no general shift. It's happening all over the place. But one of the things that I really love about autumnal shift uh, is seasonal coat coloration changing. So this happens in at least 20 or so species of birds and mammals in North America alone, from your classic Arctic hare that has the sort of bright white, all white coat in the winter, and then the drab brown coat the rest of the year. And then things like the ptarmigan, that is happens the same thing happens in the birds where they are, adapt to snow snowfall and snow coverage camouflage in the winter and then sort of a tundra ground uh dusty earth color in the rest of the year now this uh is a really interesting way to keep track of how animals are adapting as the season of coldness gets shorter as winter gets shorter with climate change uh some researchers were looking at what is causing these changes in coat color molting what brings it about one of the things that seems to happen in most mammals is uh the change in day length so photoperiodicity it's called and as the days start getting shorter and shorter it triggers in their biological clock these sort of um the release of hormones that cause a shift in the coat where the brown coat is shed and the white coat grows in and it seems like this is like we talked about in our circadian episode where we talked about circadian clocks 
located in the brain uh, in a nucleus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus uh, that synchronizes these sort of clock gene expression in all the tissues at once. Really cool and pretty straightforward in mammals, where when the days get shorter, this happens. In birds, it's a completely different story. There are three different clocks that happen sort of independently yet interrelatedly. And one of them is in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. One of them is in the retina of the eyes, which is really bizarre. In mammals, the eyes only act as a receptor that affects the, that nucleus. But the retina and eyes has its own system for this sort of the periodicity. And then finally, the pineal gland of the bird. So these three systems are acting in concert, and it really makes it difficult to pinpoint how birds are reacting to this photo change. Uh, which is, I think, really cool. It's like active research going on with bird neurology, uh, which is a field that I know nothing about. Um, but it seems like in birds, other things affect this color change more than in mammals. So in mammals, it's mostly day length, but in birds, temperature and even snowfall can affect how quickly and how um, and when they change their coats. So in birds that have started initiating the change to their winter white coat, if it suddenly gets very cold, they'll change faster. Wow. That's cool. I was yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of technical stuff there, but... um. Yeah. In the end, interesting to see if, if as winter gets shorter and shorter, if animals can react and adapt with these gene pathways. Yeah, I was thinking that yeah. it was interesting that it was linked to the shortness of days rather than temperature. Mm-hmm. Because, for example, say an Arctic fox which turns white, the shorter days, if it's warm, does not necessarily mean that white is good. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be anti-camouflage mm-hmm. with white uh, snow. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, it sounds like the birds are in a much better position, maybe to kind of adapt to this changing climate, whereas the mammals may not be in such a good spot. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, potentially devastating news. Yeah. I mean, there's always <laughs> climate change. It is, isn't it? It really, really is. Now, have you got anything adorable in your back pocket to cheer us up? I do. Oh, um, <laughs> so, you know, not necessarily something that you might think of in autumn, but some animals are actually having babies. So seals are having their pups now. Between October and January, female seals will come up onto land and they'll give birth and they'll like look after their young on land for a little while and then they'll go back into the into the sea. Do you know why they do that in autumn? It's basically that after they've had a summer of catching fish, the females are in good nick to have babies. They're in like good condition after the Yes, yeah. Which one's the good nick? (laughs) Depends on the day. Uh, that contrasts with something that I found, which is not cute and almost the opposite, which is this deer rutting season, which is that this is uh, deer rutting. Uh, rutting comes from the Latin word uh, meaning to roar, uh, because this is when deers fight to impregnate the females. And the reason they do this now is because then the females will have their babies in the spring where all of the uh, food is growing. So they have fresh grass so they'll be able to feed the babies with milk. As this episode comes to an end, we must say goodbye, but we'll be back next week, listeners, with a brand new topic, which will be forests. I'm excited for this one because I may have mentioned this before, 
but I am from the most forested county in England. Hmm. Can you see the forest for the trees? <laughs> Often not. You think I'd know more about them? <laughs> well, we'll find out next week. Yeah, we'll see. I really should revise. Until then, we hope you have a lovely week. But for this week, it's a uh, goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It's a goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. which is Britain's only venomous steak, steak, uh, which is Britain's only, f- <laughs> I nearly said feminine, <laughs> which is Brit. <laughs>